Hello, this is Chris Naka. I work on the Atlas Obscura podcast, mostly behind the scenes, but sometimes I will get in front of a mic, especially if there's an unusual rodent involved. When I found out we were picking a week of episodes to reshare for Women's History Month, I immediately thought of our story about the Kalamazoo Gals, a group of women in Michigan whose work manufacturing Gibson guitars during World War II was covered up for decades. That is, until an avid guitar collector, who also happens to be a law professor, started asking questions. I hope you enjoy this story as much as I do and appreciate getting a chance to hear what these rare instruments sound like. If you want to learn more about Alice Obscura's Women's History Month project, please visit the link in the show notes. Even if you don't play guitar, you've probably still heard of Gibson guitars. And if you've never heard of Gibson, you've still definitely heard a Gibson. The electric guitars have a tone that is thick and heavy, this powerful sound. It's the sound of Jimmy Page and Carlos Santana, of B.B. King and Sister Rosetta Tharp. There is an incredible kind of vibe to a Gibson guitar. That doesn't even include the acoustic guitars. That's the guitar of Robert Johnson and Emmylou Harris. The sound of a Gibson is iconic, and so are so many of the famous musicians who strum them. So it's easy to forget that there's a whole team of people behind every one of these guitars, from the designers to the luthiers to the people who help cut, shape, and finish the various parts. These workers don't generally get a lot of credit. They're drowned out by the glory of the instruments they make and the musicians who use them. But... In one very unique case, a group of Gibson guitar makers wasn't just ignored or overlooked. Their very existence was covered up. I'm Dylan Thuris, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we're going to Kalamazoo, Michigan, home of the original Gibson Guitar Factory. And we'll hear the story of the Kalamazoo Gals, the women who stepped up to produce thousands of guitars during World War II, only to be written out of history. But don't fret, we've got the story. That's after this. time I took a road trip. How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. If you're looking for a place where the wide-open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. 
There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. There are a lot of guitars out there these days. There are a lot of guitarists, too. Just toss a rock out of any window in Brooklyn and you're going to hit one. But in that sea of guitars and guitar people, there are some truly one-of-a-kind instruments. And there are some truly one-of-a-kind instrument lovers out there, too. I've been a long-time guitar geek, certified and certifiable. John Thomas is a law professor, a guitarist, and a bona fide guitar expert. He's a contributor to the magazine Fretboard Journal and the guardian of an impressive collection. Largely Gibson guitars because my blues and folk heroes from the 1920s and 30s played those guitars. And at some point in time, a friend who knew I was collecting guitars contacted me and offered me, and I purchased this beautiful, looks like it was made last week, a guitar from the 1940s. There were rumors that there were World War II era Gibsons, and this is one of those. Gibson had been around since the late 1800s, making acoustic instruments. And like many companies across America, Gibson's production slowed during World War II. To support the war effort, their factory was retrofitted to produce munitions. Gibson was early into electronics, could build radio and radar equipment, had good woodworking skills, could build the internal structures for airplane wings and the pontoons in amphibious aircraft, and had some metal skills. For instance, the adjustable metal truss rod that strengthens a guitar's neck turned out to be a perfect size for a component in a 50 caliber machine gun. John had read the company's official history. It mentioned the service awards Gibson won, and the company claimed that no guitars were produced during that time. He'd heard the rumors, but he believed the official account. So this made some sense to me, right? Gibson didn't make any instruments. It was assisting the war. But then he got his hands on this unique Gibson acoustic guitar. So I got the guitar and just became fascinated with the instrument. It's a beautiful guitar, a very rare instrument that sounded glorious. And it had this banner on it that says that only a Gibson is good enough. And there's a certain period of time during which... Gibson guitars had that little decal that says only Gibson's good enough on the headstock. There was a book out at the time that repeated this rumor about the World War II era guitars and how they all had this banner, only a Gibson is good enough. The theory in this book was that these guitars would have been made by the older, more experienced craftsmen who didn't go to fight in World War II. To John Thomas, that seemed like a perfectly reasonable explanation. But he kept researching. At some point during that process, I came across a photograph of just women, probably 70 or 80 women, I haven't counted them all, but a group of women standing in front of the Gibson factory. And it looked to me, it could have been 30s, 40s, 50s. I'm not much up on hairstyles and dress styles, but it looked in that era. And I became really interested. I eventually got an original print of that photograph dated 
June 1944. So now I've got a guitar in my hand that looks like it came from that time period, and I got a photograph of the Gibson workforce in front of 225 Parsons Street in Kalamazoo, Michigan. That's all women. John couldn't really tell from the photograph what the women did at the factory. Did they make the rods for machine guns? John summoned his inner Woodward and Bernstein and eventually convinced a Gibson exec, an anonymous Gibson exec, by the way, to let him peek at the company's shipping ledgers. I photographed a total of about 4,400 pages. That's from 1936 through 1946 or 47, and took them home. And there it was, clear as day. Turns out, Gibson shipped nearly 25,000 total instruments during the war. Total instruments meaning guitars, mandolins, some violins, banjos, of the like. So now I got this mystery, right? John's investigation was picking up steam. He had this rare guitar, he had a photo, and he had shipping records. But now, he needed eyewitnesses. So I take out advertisements in the Kalamazoo Gazette and all the local newspapers and all the contiguous nearby communities. I run it on, I think it's Wednesday for six weeks or something. It's the whatever the most read day was for the newspaper. I think it's the same day coupons for grocery shopping come out. I think, well, maybe I'll get somebody. Just, my name's John Thomas. I'm researching a book about Gibson guitars during World War II. If you or someone you knew worked at Gibson during World War II, I'd love to meet you or that person. I'll be in town these days. I don't specify I'm looking for men or women. I found 12 of those women in that 1944 photograph. Some of those 12 did do military work, and some of them did admin work. But some of them worked on guitars. John got on a plane and headed to Kalamazoo. His first stop was the home of a woman in her late 80s, a woman named Jenny Snow. Jenny was a string winder. There were people who made strings. She made strings. She pulls out a string that's been coiled up. It springs out to its full length. She coils it back, roughly the speed of light, slaps it back into the envelope and says, okay, Sonny, let's see you do it. <laughs> now, I have coiled a lot of strings in my time because when I change the strings on my many guitars, um, I, I coil them back up and I send them to programs that share them with people who can't afford strings. But boy, I cannot come close to matching Jenny. I'm trying to wind it up, stick it in this little envelope. And I think we kind of bonded over that. John also talked to a woman named Valora Wood. I asked her what she did at Gibson. And she said, oh, I was a guitar inspector. Bang, I have a witness to the production of guitars. When did you start? I started early 1942, I worked through 1944. So she's got all, most of the wartime, she's, she's been expecting the guitars. How many inspectors were there? Just me. Now I'm a total guitar geek, and I, I'm kind of shaking at that point, the hair standing up on the back of my neck. It would have stood up on my head, but I've already bald by then, so nothing to stand up there. Not only had John Thomas confirmed that guitars had been made during World War II, he discovered that there had been female luthiers. Everybody knew about Rosie the Riveter. Nobody knew about the woman I've come to call Laura the Luthier. It's just unbelievable. And now, with Valora Wood, he'd found perhaps the best person to identify what a World War II-era Gibson actually looked like. And I say to her, excuse me, I got something in my car you've seen before. I'd like you to see it again. 
I go out and I get my guitar, that guitar that started me on my journey and bring it in and get it re-inspected by the original World War II inspector. And it is such a moving moment to me. Now, it is the only Gibson, I think, at least the only World War II Gibson ever inspected twice, especially seven de decades from first to second inspection. And it passed both times. Based on his investigation, John Thomas brought the history of women like Jenny and Valura to light in his book. He titled it Kalamazoo Gals, a nod to the Glenn Miller song, I've Got a Gal in Kalamazoo, which oddly enough reached number one in 1942, just as these unsung women were sitting there making Gibson guitars. But one question remained, why the cover-up? Why were these women never given credit, never given their due? And why did the company history deny that these guitars were ever even made in the first place? So the only explanation, in my opinion, is Gibson did not think that the buying public, typically men at that time, would buy women-made guitars. So Gibson sold these guitars. We aren't making any guitars at this time. Some guitars show up at retailers. These were new old stock. They were built before the war by men. Gibson sold them under that guise all because they were afraid, and maybe legitimately, maybe reasonably, that the buying public wouldn't buy instruments made by women. The war ended, and the men returned to the factories. The women returned to their homes. Woody Guthrie was out there playing a Gibson acoustic with a telltale banner. Only a Gibson is good enough. To this day, the guitar community remains largely populated by men. But there are some really notable female luthiers. I'm a luthier. I repair and restore guitars, mostly. I live in a small two-bedroom apartment, and I think I have 12 guitars in here. <laughs> Mamie Minch is a guitar geek, like John Thomas. Yeah, so I met John Thomas when he was basically touring and talking about this project, um, and I was working at a vintage guitar store in Brooklyn, New York. She actually joined him on that trip to Kalamazoo. So I've actually met two of the Kalamazoo gals. Um, one was Irene Stearns, and she's, I think she's 98 now. Um, and she is just as fun-loving and as vivacious as I think she's always been. She's like a, has a little bit of a naughty streak. She's really funny. And, you know, we ate some Midwestern delicacies. And she gave me some needlework she'd done. I actually have, I, I pulled it out because we were going to do this interview. She made this really lovely little guitar bookmark. Um, teeny tiny little cross stitches. You know, she's 96 when she made it, I think. Mamie has seen enough of these World War II Banner Gibsons to know that they don't all look the same and some sound better than others. But it all makes sense given the circumstances. The stars sort of had to align <laughs> because these women didn't really get trained. Um, I think that Gibson was lucky because they had this pool of young people who had experienced sewing and who did needlework and did lots of like small handcrafts. So they had all this really great hand-eye coordination, but they didn't really get a lot of training about how to properly build guitars. So in some ways they were winging it. They're unorthodox. They're idiosyncratic, sometimes imperfect. In other words, they are the best embodiments of the individuality, the stories, the lives of the women who created them. And in case you're wondering, 
Mimi does own her own Kalamazoo Gal Gibson. A dealer wanted me to fix it, but he didn't want to spend the money to do it properly. And so I just went like, ugh, so exasperating. Are you going to sell this to me or what? (laughs) So he did. Um, It's one of my favorite guitars. Thanks so much to Mamie Minch and John Thomas for talking with us, and an extra thanks to John Thomas for recording himself playing his Kalamazoo Gal Gibson guitar. It's what you've heard throughout the whole episode and what you're hearing right now. Our podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. This episode was reported by Matthew Taub. The production team includes Doug Baldinger, Chris Naka, Camille Stanley, Sarah Wyman, Manolo Morales, Chinanya Onike, Maddie Weinberg, Camille Mojica, Tracy Samuelson, John Delore, Peter Clowney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. This episode was sound designed by John Delore and mixed by Luce Fleming. I'm Dylan Thuris, wishing you all the wonder in the world. I will talk to you soon. See you next time. Witness Docs from Stitcher. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.